1: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Patronage as Politics in South Asia, edited by Anastasia Pileovsky. The book is published by Cambridge University Press in 2014, and Anastasia is a Newton-Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at CRASH and a Fellow and Director of Studies at Girton College at the University of Cambridge. Now, does patronage always imply corruption of democratic political processes. Across 16 essays by historians, political scientists and anthropologists, this book explores this question and many more across a range of historical and cultural contexts. The volume's collective drive to ask difficult and theoretically nuanced questions about the role of patronage in South Asia gives the book a a coherence that plays wonderfully against the contributions, eclecticism and diversity. I had the pleasure of speaking with Anastasia just a few moments before... Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Anastasia to New Books in South Asian Studies. Patronage in politics is by and large viewed as, as problematic, both in academic and in popular discourse. But in calling your book Patronage as Politics in South Asia, it's, it's a way for you to really critically interrogate this assumption. So I was running for the first question to give us an idea of, of, of the big argument of your book. Could you please tell us like, what looking at patronage in the region teaches us about the way politics works?
0: Well, thank you, Ian, so much for having, you, having me with you. And thank you for such a big question. I'm afraid it, it requires quite a big answer, which, <laughs> which I'll do my best to give. Well, I think that to understand politics, we really need to understand how people who are involved in this politics think. So more specifically, I think we need to understand what uh, these people expect from one another, what they think these other people and they themselves should do, what they should be like. Um, I think we need to understand what to these people we are looking at makes for an authoritative person, for a legitimate a good or bad leader. And also we need to understand the ideas and values, the categories and values that motivate their decision judgment, um, the ideas that really steer what people do. So all of this should be rather obvious, rudimentary stuff. Right? To understand how stuff works, we need to understand how people is that um, academics who are trained in the Euro-American ways of political thinking have got very firm ideas of their own about all these things, about what politicians should be like, what they should do, what political relations should be like, what is and isn't reasonable to expect um, within politics, and so on. Now, I think our own political ideas are rooted in three basic values or rather beliefs that we have. The first of these is something we can think of as detachment or something um, that that um, manifests itself in the detachment of the bureaucratic process, the impersonality of it of, um, and of law. Um, and this is one of the cornerstones of our ideas of about good governance or of political justice. So we think that Politicians and bureaucrats shouldn't do favours to to particular persons, but they should rather be following proper procedure, proper procedural rules, which um, make them not discriminate between people. When they start to discriminate and when they give jobs to their uncles or tax breaks to their nephews, we call it corruption, right? Now, the second belief is um, one in individual autonomy, by which we mean that all people who are involved in politics should make political choices freely on the basis of a rational deliberation and fully on their own terms, independently of any kind of relations that they might be involved in. So during elections, of course, the enclosure of the voting booth is really meant to assist that freedom um, to separate people from outside influences, as we call them, and to create a kind of autonomous, solitary moment for for their political choice. And the third belief, and I think that's the most important and fundamental one, is in equality. So we believe that good politics and good governance really rest on basic human equality, or rather should rest on basic human equality. So not just equality among citizens of a country or among voters, um, but among voters and people whom they elect to political office. So our sense of political representation, for instance, I think rests in this belief in equality in the belief that political representatives are people who are authorized to speak on our behalf um, because they are in some way like us, either, either because, you know, they're women just like us or ethnic minorities just like us or more. Commonly and simply because we feel that we can identify with their convictions. So, representatives are people we identify with. That's how we tend to think about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these ideas as such. In fact, they've been extremely important to some of the most remarkable political processes and transformations of, of modernity. But what is a problem is that these normative ideas, right, ideas about what should Be, come to be used as categories for analysis. When analysts in academia and in the press, or people sitting around kitchen tables talking about politics, start mixing assertions of their own beliefs with attempts to understand the lives of other people. So when analysis becomes displaced by judgment, by judgment of other people's ideas through the moral standards that we ourselves have inherited through particular history and through particular cultural environments. So when we do this, when we judge other people through our own moral categories, politics in most of the world, including not, not just you know, funny places like India, but including countries like Britain or Germany or the United States of America, starts to look very disconcerting. It looks utterly corrupt, even criminal in some cases, And ultimately pretty incomprehensible um, in any but the most dismal of terms. So if we start not from these beliefs of our own, but rather from questions, so from questions rather than answers about ideas that shape people's political lives, I think things may appear not only a little less blanketly grim, um, but also much more interesting and perhaps even more instructive about politics, not just in South Asia, but I think in places that many of us who live in Euro-American places call home. So that's really the start of this book. It starts from these very simple questions about what people think about their political lives in South Asia. Um, And the answers that the book provides, um, which come from many different angles, from people who work on medieval Tibet to people who work on um, Carol migrants to the, to, um, to the Middle East um, and people all over India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, the answers that it provides um, come from some shared observations of a very different way of thinking that we collectively, as contributors to the book, have Um, seen, have heard, have experienced um, in India, very different ways of thinking about political roles and political relations, Um, ideas which I have collectively called patronage, right? So um, these, of course, aren't only um, political ideas that people entertain in South Asia. Um, They're not the only things that people think, um, and they're not uncontested ideas, But they are very widespread and some of the um, contributors show, especially the ones who go further into history, that they've been important to the politics of the region for a very long time. The set of ideas which I've called patronage, they involve, I think, three, again, fundamental beliefs, which are rather conflict with our own beliefs, which I've named earlier, about detachment, individual autonomy and equality. So the first belief in, in, in this morality of, of um, patronage is the belief in personal attachments as opposed to detachment. So in bonds between people being a very good and valuable thing, perhaps indeed the most valuable thing in social life. Um, and this belief underpins the idea that in politics personal relations, very particular relations, are not really a sign of corruption, but rather the right and proper foundation for political life. So people tend to think that political leaders should be personally involved in the lives of their constituents. So when we meet politicians, what they're usually doing are something that isn't to do with legislating, but rather with Um, helping particular people out in particular ways and they proudly call themselves social workers when you talk to British MPs they um, complain about being denigrated to the status of social workers Um, they say oh you know we should really be in parliament legislating and instead we're helping this girl um, get her council housing or we're helping so and so with their visa and, and and so on but in India if people proudly say, look, I've helped this person, I've helped that person, and so on. So um, they're personally involved, and people think that they should be, that they should help them, that they should be generous to them, and um, not just be sort of accountable to them in an abstract way, but rather responsible for their lives. So people will come that don't have enough money, they expect uh, political, elected political leaders to provide for them. And they often do as much as they can. Now, so the, the second idea is the idea of mutual dependence. So instead of individual autonomy, which is so central to the Euro-American way of thinking, um, here we have the idea of mutual dependence, um, which is the basis of trust um, and responsibility in political relations. And the third idea, and I think this one is the most um, perplexing for, for Westerners who encounter this way of thinking, is inequality rather than equality as the basis for good relations between people, between people who govern and then people who, whom they govern. So this idea is that um, political leaders mustn't be like us Um, But they must be bigger, higher standing people, what I've called patrons or in in South Asian literature, but also in broader anthropological literature, anthropologists have called uh, big men. So they should have more money, more power, more status. They should be more than us. And it's precisely because they're grander people, because they're grandees, that they can have so much more responsibility than ordinary folk. So the idea is that they shouldn't be like us. They should be bigger than us, and therefore they should have more responsibility. And the responsibility of a more intense sort. So not just responsibility to us, but also responsibility for us. Okay? So if we understand these ideas, I think we can understand why, for example, many people in South Asia don't really think of corruption in the way that say Transparency International presented to us, they don't think of it as the misuse of public office for private gain, but rather as the politician's failure to be attentive enough or generous enough to their people. So if you and I might see embezzlement as corruption, in India many people see it as corrupt only if the person who's embezzling is not really sharing enough With their followers right it's fine to embezzle as long as you do it not just for yourself but also for other people who depend on you now the piece by pamela price in the book is especially good on this um, alternative sense of corruption but it runs through several other pieces as well now so if we step out from our own world of detachment autonomy equality into the world of attachment dependence and inequality I think we might get a better sense of politics, not just in South Asia, but also other parts of the world. So, take for instance the United States at the moment, right? Uh, a hotbed of thinking about what the hell democracy is all about <laughs> and what, um, what, um, how we can understand it. Now, I think that liberal commentators um, often seem confused about the reasons for Trump's election. So they say, how could people who live in trailer parks in the south of the United States choose a man from the Golden Tower from Manhattan, right? He's he's so unequal to them. How can they possibly think that he can represent their interests if he's so unlike them, right? Also, you know, how can born-again Christians vote for such a loose figure, right? So, if we think through ideas of equality as the basis of identification, how indeed? But if we think that maybe there's a different basis, which might not have to do with equality, but rather with, with um, with the sense that we've described in the book as the basis for um, choosing your leader, it might just begin to make more sense.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I wonder, that sets us up really well um, to discuss the rest of the book and also it's got me thinking about lots of things. Not, I mean, the book got, anyway got me thinking and this has got me thinking even more about the world around us now. But um, before we turn to the, the book in depth, I was wondering first, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background and what led you to want to conceive and edit this collection?
0: Yes, well, I'll start a little bit before my academic life, just to say that I was never interested in politics at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and in the Soviet Union, decent people were not interested in politics. My parents were both artists, and although you know, I was brought up in a sort of fiercely Marxist, egalitarian ethic, um, politics was always something from a different world, not from ours. It's something that people who had no morals did. Right, it's a sense that's shared by quite a lot of people in the world, but it was very intensely so in the Soviet Union. Now, when I was an adolescent, I moved to the United States, and I became interested in, in culture, in the way that people think about their lives and how they how they live them. And so, I studied um, as an anthropologist as, as an undergraduate student. I ended up studying anthropology at Boston University in the United States. Um, I've also, for the same reason of interest about how people imagine their lives, I've, I've had an interest in religion, which was my other major at BU. I even dabbled in, in Sanskrit s- studies at one point for a very short time. And then I, 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 I won a Rhodes Scholarship, which took me to Oxford, where I did my master's and doctoral degrees, which were both in social anthropology. Now, the idea for this book was born really during my doctoral field research, which I was doing among a cast of professional thieves who are called cunters and who live in the North Indian state of Rajasthan, where I've done most of my field work. So while I was there, I ended up um, sitting ringside to lots and lots of political debates, some of them very, very heated, some getting very nearly violent. And I witnessed one round of state assembly elections in Rajasthan. This was in 2008, which actually forms the basis for what I've written about in in the book's chapter that I've contributed. And what struck me was that many of the ways that people thought and talked about politics were just, just had nothing to do with what I read in books and articles about Indian politics before I went to India. You know, I, I wasn't studying politics, and I wasn't particularly interested in, in it as such. But you know, I I read stuff on South Asia quite a lot of it, and I, I'm interested in more popular writings on on the region. And what I saw there, in so many ways, was just so different um, from what from what people were writing. And this book is sort of a, was a small step in the direction of trying to convey the sense of politics that I experienced in India to to an academic, to to a Western audience, to an Anglophone audience. And that's something that I'm um, now I got much more involved in and in working on various projects which are doing just that
1: mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That, that gives us a good sense of yourself. So now let's go... Back, back to the book, and the book is split into, into three different sections. The idea of patronage in South Asia, and the second is democracy as patronage, and finally prospects and disappointments. So let's look at one contribution from each of the sections. So the first section, I want to talk about um, Sumit Guha's chapter, and um, he explores a chapter called, in, in a, his chapter is called Patronage and State Making in Early Modern Empires in India and Britain. So I was wondering, what does his chapter tell us about the importance of power and wealth when thinking about patronage?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, so several pieces in the book, and Shumit's uh, piece um, is certainly one of them, um, remind us that the, the hierarchical patronage-focused political order that we have described isn't just about ideas, of course. It's a political order, and it requires um, it, it. involves power, and it requires resources. Um What what, um, his piece reminds us of, I think, is that um, the paternal relations, in order to realize the ideals inherent in them, especially the ideal of generosity, they require resources, often very substantial resources. Um, So the patron figure sort of defining responsibility, right, is is to be generous and to give, to provide for their people. So as, as somebody told Harold Roode, who is one of the contributors to the volume, um, you need to be a businessman nowadays to be a politician, right? So if... Previously, uh, political leaders had their own lands, had their own taxes, had their own wealth that they could then redistribute. And we know from um, historical studies of kingship in South Asia that that kind of generous redistribution, sometimes over generous redistribution was really the core of, of polities in South Asia. Now politicians need to get that money from somewhere if they don't come from grand aristocratic lineages and so on. So many of them do run businesses. Now, this kind of need for acquisition of resources and their um, lavish redistribution puts the entire system in tension with itself because the ideal of generosity of selfless generosity stands very much at odds with the self-interested acquisition of 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 money of means that politicians must engage in in order to be able to provide it right and the piece by david David gilmartin which i think is one of the finest pieces in, in in the volume is really excellent on this um, he describes this tension in great detail and how it worked out through the early, um, late 19th and early 20th century in India and, and Pakistan. So um, Shumit Guha makes another striking point uh, about what makes and breaks patronal relations. Now, what he shows is that the patronal systems he describes in 18th century West India, so that was both the Maratha polity as well as the East India Company, which was operating in the same area. So it's very interesting because he's linking it to British structures of of, <clears throat> of political affiliation with, with the Maratha structures. And what he's showing is that in both instances, the system of this, this well-working order of, of paternal relations relied on constant personal engagement, on a sort of a system of favors, which were perceived as personal favors. And whenever it ossified into a regimented system of a formal entitlement, the whole thing fell apart. So what I think he shows is that this paternal order that we've described can't really work without it being Personal, right? It has to remain that, and whenever it forms a formal hierarchy, it just um, the the point of it um, disappears. Mm-hmm.
1: Wonderful. F- f- thanks for that. Now the second section has actually a, the, the one you just the one you just mentioned, uh, and also a couple of other excellent um, contributions by people who previously appeared on New Books in South Asia, like Lisa Bjorkman and, and, and Pamela Price, as well. But seeing, as you have a chapter in that section. Let's let's focus on your chapter, which is centered on uh, rural Rajasthan, and the chapter's called India's Demiotic Democracy, and it's. De- in the ethnographic long durée. So my, my question here, and it's a bit like my first question, like a very big, big question, but uh, I was wondering uh, what role does morality play in political practices and
0: decisions? Um, thanks, Ian. So my chapter, as I said, is uh, about the 2008 elections to the Rajasthan Legislative Assembly, which I witnessed and um, and documented as much as I could when I was doing my doctoral fieldwork. And I show in the chapter that the old um, local idea um, that patrons as big men should be generous – is really central to the way that people nowadays judge politicians and make their electoral choices in the democratic process. So morality or the values through which people form their judgments is really crucial for understanding this process. So people don't just accept... And what's I mean, what I thought was interesting is that people don't just accept everything that politicians give them as a positive patronal gift. So, right, the political... Analysts oftentimes say that, well, these huge feasts that politicians throw, the the, the various you know saris that they distribute, are sort of buy politi- by voters' favor. Well, what I've found out is that they don't actually buy um, voters' favor unless they're judged as morally sound, and there's a very um, complex moral process of judging of making a decision about what what something means in moral terms because you know a gift is a gift you know in in economic terms I mean a sorry is a sorry Um, but people distinguish very very sharply between things that look like they 've been given selfishly and instrumentally, right, like things that have been given in order to buy your vote to buy your allegiance, and gifts that were given from the heart, as they say, which signal the the politicians' um willingness to be their man to to um, to have ongoing loyalty to them there 's a lot of disagreement about how exactly to judge these. Um, gifts that politicians give, but the principle of selfless generosity remains the shared kind of standard of judgment. So there's an interesting story that I tell in in the piece about a husband and a wife uh, who are offered um, uh, a gift of cash from um, a politician, who sort of sends young boys in the quite late in the night in order to to give it to them, and how they react differently. To this donation, and the sort of the brawl that ensues between the husband and the wife, because one takes one position and an, and the other one another position, and it's very much a moral um, disagreement um, between whether they should take it and and why and why not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, this is uh, this is. No, it's, a, it's a, I'm remembering that anecdote when I read it. the uh, the, the final the final Section of the book looks at the the limits of what we might want to still call um, patronage. That's like when it breaks down mm. and, and blurs into something else. And uh, there's a few chapters here which uh, which do that. But I want to talk about Nicholas Martin's chapter. Um, mm. And um, so my question is, what what's the dark side of patronage as as he calls it in the in the Pakistani Punjab?
0: Right. Um, so I think it's important to remember that. Patronage in itself isn't a good system. It isn't any better than any other. And um, it isn't in itself, um, you know, something that I endorse as a a particular moral good. I think to make um, the moral logic of this legible, which is what we try in the book, is not at all the same as to endorse it as, as a moral good, right, which some of the readers of the book can mistake us. Um, the book is, is saying that. And I think it's really important that we don't, um, you know, blur the two purposes. Now, um, patronage can and always disintegrate into exploitation, Right, so when bonds of mutual dependence are severed, and when people who are involved in the relationship are no longer bound by mutual responsibility to one another, patronage turns into bare inequality, grabbing, gaining, abuse, even slavery that um, Nico Martin described in his chapter, uh, or a sort of bonded you know cycles of of indebtedness and um bonded labor and endless misery that can last for many generations now this kind of thing has happened all over south asian in recent history um, and i think it happens wherever relations between landholders and laborers um, has been have been disrupted and wherever the the landholders the patrons to depend for their political influence for the security of their income not on People who are below them, their laborers, but rather on something above them. So, like the government of British India, right, or even state law, which access to which in South Asia isn't evenly distributed, right, but rather is it, it's more accessible to people who are more influential, who are wealthier, right. So when that becomes the source of 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 power, of influence, of authority, as well of, as of financial security, um, bonds of dependence on people below you, um, or rather, dependence on people below you, starts to disintegrate. And the very thing that makes patronage a moral ideal—that responsibility, not only of people below to people above, but also of people above to people below. Um, Dis- disappears. And I think we can no longer talk about this. And the mistake that that I think a lot of um, political uh, analysts make when they see unequal relations of any sort as patronage is precisely that, that they don't see that one is inequality, injustice and and exploitation, and the other infused with a sense of responsibility and delivering on the sense of responsibility. And that is very fragile, of course, and um, vulnerable to particular political and economic circumstances.
1: Thanks so much for that. Um, as we were mentioning before we started recording, I really enjoyed this book. It gives it gives. You so much to think about, it gives you so much to think about, not only in terms of South Asia, but I think in, in other parts of, in other parts of the world as well. I think about it in terms of Eastern Europe and in Hungary and the sort of corruption scandals that are going on here with, yeah. I think, like you mentioned also, Trump as well. And it makes us rethink questions of democracy and inequality and all these things very well. So I'd urge people to check out the book. Um, one of the problems that we always have on new books in South Asian studies is we get, you know, very deep and rich books and then we only get a time To talk about a few of the contributions. So I was wondering um, if there's anything that you would like to highlight that I've not asked um, with my questions today. And then also, could you please also tell us a little bit about what current projects you're working on now?
0: Yes, Ian. Um, I think it's especially true of a book that has 16 chapters that, that we can only touch on a few things. Um, I, should, I should mention
1: it doesn't fit through my letterbox. So I have
0: to... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a doorstop um, sort of book. But I think one chapter that is absolutely dazzling, and it's the first chapter in the book, is by Madison Mines. Um, in fact, it's, it's the last thing he published before he very suddenly and very sadly passed away, just like Last year, um, it's uh, madison Of course, was a, a real pioneer of work on um, hierarchy and on patronage, on what he called the the politics and, of, of big men, um, it, which set out the idea of hierarchy not as an ossified pyramid like structure that we 've got from Dumont, but rather as a system of thinking about life that is very much um, mobile that 's full of individual pursuits aspirations um, decisions that people make that that 's really the foundation of of real human life so um, so read that chapter it 's it's, it's wonderful also um uh there there as I as I said, David Gilmartin's piece is wonderful. Ward Baronshott has a very fine study of fixers who are as South Asianists have now come to accept are a very central part of of politics in South Asia. But how it is that fixers become patrons and patrons become fixers is very interesting and it's outlined in that. Um Beatrice Juregi. Uh, has a fantastic chapter on the way that these, um, the logic of patronage operates in the way that police um, work in northern India. And Lucia um, uh writes about sort of king like. Uh, often criminal political figures in, in, in northern India, really worth a read. Um, and I think the, the final chapter really takes us beyond the shores of South Asia and is a wonderfully provocative piece by Philippa Osella, one of the f- absolutely finest in the book. It's about the way that the patronage and mediation work in the movement of Indians and especially Carolines to and from the Gulf. And, and, and it really throws it into a much more global perspective um, than, than, than some of the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I have really worked on a couple of things that this book starts off. The first is hierarchy, right, as a broad concept of relating vertically through inequality, through mutual dependence. And also on just bringing the sense of the, of of the political of the sense of politics into that is South Asian into the um, into our understanding. So I'm now in the final stages of writing a book about hierarchy as a source of social mobility. We tend to think of it as 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 a roadblock to social mobility, but actually. The, the book argues that it can be a very it's a very powerful mobilizer, enabler of of people's movements and their aspirations. So it's based on the research I've done with this cast of professional thieves, which I mentioned earlier, and the provisional title is Hierarchy as Hope. Let's hope it comes out next year. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also writing a book on Indian democracy as a prof- profoundly hierarchical political practice. Of course, it develops the theme of of the patronage book. And um, I think what what I'm trying to do is to cast the argument beyond South Asia more explicitly this time around um, and think through what seeing Indian democracy as both a very successful democracy, one that engages its, uh, its populace in the political process, Um, and at the same time very hierarchical in its um, imaginative base, what it teaches us about democracy as such, what we think democracy is and the shape that it should take. Um, So I'm also editing a volume with a couple of anthropologists who are not South Asianists. One is Joel Robbins, who's an anthropologist working in Papua New Guinea, and um, an anthropologist called Vita Peacock, who works in Germany. So the volume we're editing is called Hierarchy, Egalitarianism, and Responsibility. And it's a collection of work um, by anthropologists who are working all over the world. And it interrogates the current crisis of what we think to be a crisis of political and economic responsibility as a distinctive problem of egalitarianism. Okay? Okay. Um, And I'm also editing a special issue for Modern Asian Studies, which is about the moral underpinnings of political criminalization in South Asia, or what South Asians um, nowadays tend to call Gundaraj, the rule of gangsters or goons. Um, And the final project is something I'm just starting out with um, Lisa Mitchell, who is a historian and an anthropologist based at UPEC with whom we, are, we started hosting a series of conversations that involve historians, Sanskritists, literary scholars, um, as well as anthropologists. And the, the conversations are meant to start mapping out the vernacular vocabularies or lexicons that are used by people in South Asia to talk about politics and to communicate within politics. So again, it's it's an attempt to bring the, the, the local sense of political life into the academic discussion um, and to start really thinking about Indian politics in terms, through concepts that are much more appropriate to it than the kind of global language of concepts that we have inherited from Western political theory.
1: Wonderful. They all sound like really fascinating projects. We look forward to to, to reading those soon or or a little bit later for, for some of the other ones. Looking forward to them. There's nothing much more for me to do today apart from to thank you again for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. I really enjoyed reading the book and it's been great to speak with you about it today.
0: Thank you, Ian. It was wonderful.
1: Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about patronage as politics in South Asia, edited by Anastasia Piliawski. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did, and hope you check out the book itself. It's absolutely excellent. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and hope you tune in again next time. Ta-ra.